Hey everyone, if you had a chance to listen to the last episode, the Nonprofit Horror Story Summer Series for July, you may have heard that I was going to push this episode back to August 9th, but had a little bit extra time, was able to get some editing in, so I have the episode for you today. But a little bit of a trigger warning here, at the 32 minute mark, I'm going to be doing a rapid fire books review of the book Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. There's some real deal language as it relates to sexual assault and trauma. So I wanted to let you know. All right, let's get to the episode. Welcome to the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. On this podcast, we give a little bit more of a commentary feel to some of the things that are happening in the nonprofit space. And we're not just talking fundraising either. We talk about all the aspects of being in the nonprofit world. The people, the relationships, the news, the politics, and the money that goes with being in this world. Stick around. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome in, everyone. Glad to have you back. I think this is episode 16. You know, listen, we don't include the summer series, but we include the summer series. Episode 16, 17. We are on a tear right now in the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Swim Kareem. So glad to have you back. We are fully loaded today. I have a great slate of information coming to you all. We have a good news section coming up here in about two, three minutes about an organization out of the Oakland, California area. We're going to talk about that. It's going to be really good. Stay tuned for that. I had a text message from a good buddy of mine, a good friend of mine in the nonprofit space. She's in the rural West. And she asked me a question about tracking volunteers' locations via GPS. We're going to talk about that. I think that's going to be a really good one in the second segment, our main segment of the day. And here in about 20 minutes, maybe 25 minutes, we are we are packed. Let's see what, what we can do today. But here in about 20 minutes, I'm going to do a book review of a book uh, called Credible. You know, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to say anymore. I'm just going to stop right there. You heard the trigger warning in the beginning, so you know what the book is called. I don't want to give away too much. The book is really good. So we got a book review coming up here in about 20 minutes. Stay tuned for that. Be sure to follow us on Instagram if you haven't already. We're close to 100 followers, which I know, listen, Kim Kardashian has like 363 and Selena Gomez and all these folks. They have a lot of Instagram followers. But listen, we get to 100 triple digits. We're big, we're big time at that point. So follow us on Instagram. We would love to have it. Uh, have you keeping up with us? Real quick, a little bit of a, a quick announcement before we get to the show. Uh, I'm gonna be in Denver September 6th through probably the 9th. I'm probably gonna be there about three nights. I'm actually going up there for the uh Divia conference, volunteer conference. That's the directors of volunteers and agency. They do a conference every year. They're joined at the Botanical Gardens this year. Uh, I'm excited. Denver is one of my favorite cities. I love Denver, LA, DC, Albuquerque. Obviously, I love Albuquerque. Some of my favorite cities. Denver is just one of those. Love it. As an East Coaster, love it. And as someone who got their start in the nonprofit space as a volunteer and then volunteer management, 
I love being able to connect with folks, learning what's happening in the industry. So I'll, I'll be at that conference. If you're going to be in Denver, September 6, 7, 8, you know, 9, something in that range, uh, let me know. Love to hang out. Uh, maybe get some lunch, get some dinner, get a cocktail, happy hour, whatever the case may be. Uh, there's a lot of great nonprofits out there, a lot of great nonprofit insiders like you all. So if you're in Denver, uh, let me know. This is going to be a really good one. And shout out to, real fast, shout out to, Mar- to Mariah Monique, uh, the sponsorship catalyst or at the sponsorship catalyst. Uh, she gave a really great interview on uh, Julia Campbell's The Nonprofit Nation. And she was talking about how she got her start in the nonprofit space as a person who was in government. And then transition to doing a lot more work with nonprofits. If I remember right, I listened to it about a week and some change ago. So shout out to, to Mariah. See what you're doing. You're doing some great things. Uh, again, as a person who started in the volunteer space, I'm excited to do this conference because people come to the nonprofit world in all kinds of ways. And whenever I get the ability to get back to my roots of volunteers and volunteer management, that's my favorite part of the nonprofit space. So if you're in Denver, let me know. All right, that's enough of that. Let's get to the show. I tell people all the time, as a person who grew up on the East Coast, that there really is an East Coast bias. And a lot of people may not realize this if they live in Miami or Atlanta, New York, D.C., Baltimore. They, they may not realize this if they've never left, but... It kind of makes sense because a large percentage of people in the U.S., I think it's like 43% of people, live east of the Mississippi River. And I know for me, as a person who grew up in Philadelphia, I didn't know a lot of aspects of out west. I knew Los Angeles, California, but pretty much anything between L.A. and Pittsburgh didn't really know a whole lot about. So when you start talking Wyoming's and Montana's and those types of areas, you you don't you may not realize being on the East Coast how much things are geared towards the East Coast. And you know even less about the plight of indigenous communities in North America. And a part of that's a byproduct of colonialism and a byproduct of the way history books and history is told. A lot of groups, as we know, are reclaiming aspects of their history, marginalized groups, and not just the uh, United States, but all over the world, Canada, Mexico, um, Africa, all over. But for me personally, as a person who grew up in the East Coast, I didn't really know a whole lot about the plight of indigenous groups. You heard the story of Christopher Columbus and selling of a new land and manifest destiny. And as you get older, you learn a lot more about the realities of the tragedies that affected a lot of indigenous communities in Canada, in Mexico, in uh, parts of the United States. I'm looking for a new, I'm, I'm, I'm going through Google like I do all the time, and I'm looking for news stories. And I'm looking at this story out of you know Wisconsin or this story out of North Carolina. But then I saw a story from the San Francisco Chronicle that I said, yeah, this is this is definitely one. And the title of the article is, and I quote, it's transformative. 
semicolon, Bay Area nonprofit returns 43 acres to female-led indigenous land trusts. An article is written by Jessica Flores, again, with the San Francisco Chronicle. They've done a couple of different features about this particular organization, but they basically tell the story of how a nonprofit in the Oak, based out of Oakland, California, called the Segurate Land Trust received this 43 acres um, within their organization, how they were able to get this 43 acres. And the article is very well written. The nonprofit Segurate Land Trust, I was able to do some research. They have a ruling year of 2019. So that's the year I guess the IRS said, hey, we recognize you as a as a nonprofit, which, you know, let's be honest, has a little bit of colonialism when you have a government saying what you can and can't do in today's rules, but neither here nor there. And what they tell, what this the author and the various people that are part of uh, this organization tell the story of how they work with an organization called Movement Generation, also based out of Oakland with a 2021 ruling year. But Movement Generation has been around. It has early roots in the early 2000s, where the Segurite Land Trust has starts in the late 90s, so around the same time, and how this organization, Movement Generation, was able to go about getting these 43 acres of land by raising money. They ended up raising $2.8 million. They purchased this land, and then they gave it to this particular land trust, and just a very, very good breakdown of some of the work that these two nonprofits are doing. I was able to take some time to read up and watch some videos from both of these organizations. I, I watched a lot more videos from the Segurite Land Trust and read a lot more on Movement Generation. They got some good videos, Segurite Land Trust has some really good videos. Um, I, I'll put a link to obviously both of their websites in the show notes, so be sure to check that out if you're listening on Spotify or Apple. I want to read a quick quote here. This is from um, Inez Exerte, Exerte, excuse me, and she is a member. She's the creative director with Secure Day Land Trust, and she says, and I quote. This is the largest piece of land to date to be returned to Segurite Land Trust, 43 acres. And that's a lot. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a lot in the uh, East Oakland Hills. I'm not familiar with Oakland. I've never been to the Bay Area. The only part of California I've been to is Los Angeles. They do a great job of really explaining the history of that area, uh, the breakdown of indigenous land how it was um, formulated, how it was broken down in the past, different communities, different groups. I think a lot of people, especially, again, out east, and obviously there are indigenous groups all over North America. Uh, we know the great push of pushing in Native American indigenous groups out west to much of the, the middle of America. Uh, just, we know, very tragic aspects. They talk a lot about that history and so, again, this is a really good article. I'm going to put it in the show notes. It, it does have a paywall, so if you have the ability, you can kind of sneak around that. I'm not going to, you know, you can sneak around that or you can pay for, you know, a trial and things like that. One of the things that was very interesting is that they said in this article that the, the property will be managed 
by movement generation. Um, but Segurite, as an act of recipiency, the land trusts uh, approve the long-term agreement that allows um, movement generation to use the space for the next 35 years. So movement generation purchased the land, gave it to the Segurite Land Trust, and but movement generation is going to be utilizing the land for the next 35 years. Two, two major takeaways from this article, because there's so many layers and levels to this. Race in America, colonization, just nonprofit entities in general, um, a desire to, for, to do rematuration or returning land to indigenous groups. I could talk for 15, 20 minutes on this um, and, and still only scratch the surface that so many other people that are even more deeply invested in it. But two major takeaways. The first, this is a prime example of two nonprofits working together and how powerful partnerships can be. Uh, I'm sure they do a, both groups do a lot of work a lot of hard uh, efforts, and I'm sure it can be very draining uh, for them on the mind, the body, the soul when it comes to rematuration and getting the land back in the ownership of groups that it uh, should have never been out of to begin with. So just a prime example of two nonprofits coming together. I had a chance to look at both of their IRS forms, uh, their 990s. They, they're doing some, seriously, some Great work. Uh, the number of people and volunteers that are working with these groups. Shout out to, to all those involved. The second takeaway is that nonprofit work, and we know this to be a fact, nonprofit work can be so deeply rooted in our respective communities. And at its core, I mean, at its core, 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 not just nonprofit, in just in the in society and humans in general. At its core, land is the most deeply attached part of the human existence. The connection that we have to earth is it's only second to the connection that we have with each other. I was listening to an album the other day. It was uh, by Zhu, Z-H-U, and they had a little part, I think by like a philosopher or poetry, uh, a poet in it about how life all, life is all about you, and yet life is nothing about you. And for humans, the connection that we have with each other is such a powerful bond. It's 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 everything. And I think for a lot of respects, the, the next thing, and some people would even switch this, the next closest bond is the bond that we have to earth and land. And everything develops from that. Food, water, shelter, discovery, education, travel, I mean, sharing of culture, animal welfare, our connections to other animals. So much of life is foundationally at its core related to land. So shout out to the Segurite Land Trust. Shout out to Movement Generation. Uh, it feels like the work they're doing is big because the work they're doing is big. One of the most interesting aspects about being in a nonprofit space is something that a lot of people probably have never thought about until just now when I mention it. And that's the lack of breaking news in the nonprofit space. You could have been in the nonprofit space for years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And how often do you have those moments 
if you're watching the news, CBS, Fox, NBC, whatever the case may be, and they go, breaking news, XYZ, blah, 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 yada, 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 about the nonprofit space. Maybe a scandal, you know, maybe something to that degree. But for the most part, you don't get breaking news. A lot of you may not, I, I love sports. I like listening to sports, paying attention to sports, and watching sports when I get the chance. There's always breaking news. This player signed a contract, got traded. Tom Brady signs for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, there's a lot of breaking news in that space. Politics, there's a lot of breaking news in that space. But in the nonprofit world, I mean, maybe you get a Supreme Court says student loan strike down or affirmative action strike down. You might get something to that degree, but nothing that really will rock the nonprofit industry. But in our own respective spaces, we will get those moments of, holy smokes, this is this is breaking news. Or breaking news like for you in that particular moment or your particular organization or industry. I had one of those moments not long ago. Actually, just yesterday. And I said, you know, I got to. I have no choice. I got to record this. And when I'm thinking of all the different topics to talk about and all different things to talk about, you know, you, you have a whole lot of ideas. And you have a list of things. But then you get a gift from the gods. And I received a text message from a friend yesterday in the nonprofit space. High level. She does some really good stuff. I'll tell her backstory here in a little bit. She sent me a text message yesterday, late at night too. We're tight. We've been we've been close for some time, so we know each other. And this text message was like, "Wait, what?" So look, I'm gonna read the text message straight for you. For straight, uh, I'm gonna just read it. You can tell I'm excited. So she sends me a text. This was this was a little later in the day. This was close to about 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And she says, hey, quick question. Do you know of any type, do you know of any organizations that use any type of volunteer app like Buddy Punch or Rostify to track volunteers through GPS? We're looking into options to hold our AmeriCorps members accountable. I, re- I, I read that text message and I said, wait, what? It, it was one of those moments of, wait, what are we talking about here? Because I, honestly, I had so many thoughts when I read that. First, Buddy Punch. That, that alone was just hilarious. Do you know of any organizations that use volunteer app like Buddy Punch? What, what a name. And my, my second thought was, besides the buddy punch, was I was confused. I was confused about the question. So look, let me let me reread the text message for you. I'm gonna read a little bit slower here. Hey, quick question. Do you know of any organizations that use any type of volunteer app like Buddy Punch or Rastify to track volunteers through GPS? We're looking into options to hold our AmeriCorps members accountable. So when I when I when I read that, I had a, a, a lot of questions. My first was, wait a minute, you're trying to track volunteers' location? Are you trying to track their actual location, like where they are? Are you trying to track their vehicles? I said, wait a minute, this. This this doesn't sound right. One, I was like, is this legal? That was my, my next one. I was like, is this legal? Or are you trying to, you know, 
followed these particular volunteers. And look, here's the backstory because when I read that, uh, the key word that stuck out to me was actually the final word of that text message when she said accountable. That word sticks out. As a person that I've been in AmeriCorps, I did AmeriCorps for multiple years. When I hear AmeriCorps members and accountable, you know, we know the deal with AmeriCorps. They're they're younger individuals. And so this person that texted me this, she leads, she's the lead manager for an AmeriCorps program in the rural West. So the Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Nevada, California, Oregon area. I'm not gonna you know give the location, but she 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 runs an AmeriCorps program and she leads about 30 people that are AmeriCorps and I think an additional five people. So she has a large team under her that reports directly or indirectly to her. And like I said, listen, we know with AmeriCorps, a large percentage of the individuals that are in AmeriCorps, especially like in C, they're younger people. They're between the ages of 18 and 24. So you've got you know teenagers, you have people that can't even drink alcohol that are part of this program that can be in, and for her, in some rural areas of 100,000, 150,000 people or less. And her program, they do work in various schools, like at school programs, high schools. And that's what I did for a large portion of my AmeriCorps. You would go to an after school program, you're there for about three hours, four hours, you're helping people with homework, you're helping a lot of young individuals in elementary school with projects and just just getting through life right it's, it's a great service love americorps shout out to americorps but when i read that text message i had a lot of questions so i sent her an audio message and said listen you have to break this down a little bit more when you say one i, I had never heard of buddy punch i said listen i gotta i gotta do a little bit more found some information about them did some research about them but i said what are you trying to do exactly are you trying to track the volunteers for eight hours a day are you tracking actual volunteers or are you tracking the americorps volunteers because americorps of course is under uh government uh, ordinance so when you talk start talking things like location gps tracking those are trigger words for a lot of folks so i said break this down a little bit more she ends up sending me back a five and a half minute response and y'all it 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 brought up some real 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 deep questions for me but before we get into that can i tell you about my friends over at the nonprofit insider podcast that's right you know i had to do my own promo and what i want you to do right now is open your instagram app because i know you are on instagram and follow me at the nonprofit insider we have a slew of high-level posts that are going to improve your life in the nonprofit space in a relaxed and informative fashion. We're talking facts, stats, opinion pieces, exclusive nonprofit horror stories I'm only going to share on Instagram, and some pretty cool pictures from time to time. And best of all, we only post once a day, so you don't have to worry about seeing 800 million stories and posts on your feeds from me. So annoying when I see those things. Again. Follow me at the Nonprofit Insider on Instagram right now. All right, let's get back to the show. Okay, so she sends me this five and a half minute response. 
in the audio. I love using audio messages. And she explains to me that, no, no, they do not want to track the AmeriCorps volunteers location. They're not, they're not trying to do that. That's not what they're trying to do. But they're trying to have a system where, again, you got 18, 19, 21-year-olds that say, listen, yeah, I went to the elementary school because they're at you know multiple elementary schools, multiple programs. So all 30 of the people under her are not all in one location. They're all throughout this rural West, mountain West, um, different, they're in all types of different sites in this respective city. So they just want to be able to be like, listen, if one of these AmeriCorps members says, yeah, we went to the, the site and we were there for five hours, but really they were there for, say, three hours, they want to hold the AmeriCorps volunteers accountable in that particular respect. So they don't want to track the actual location. They want to track basically the ability to clock them in and clock them out based off of the location. So she gave an example of, let's say, they have 10 of their AmeriCorps members that go to, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School. They show up at this particular place, and what they would do is they would open up an app like Buddy Punch. I looked into Buddy Punch. I watched maybe 20 minutes worth of YouTube videos about Buddy Punch and getting different insights and things like that. So they would open up this particular app. And if they are within, say, 60 feet, 50 feet, 35 feet of that particular elementary school or after school program, they open up the app. The app says, oh, they actually are where they say they are. They punch in their little code or their little pen or whatever the case may be. And it basically goes, ding, they are here at the location. And then when they leave, they do the same thing. And it gives the employer the ability to go, oh, yeah, they actually were there. Because you can't be at your house, as she explained it, and say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm checking in. Or you can't even be uh, a two miles away in your car. You're supposed to be there, say, at 3 p.m. You're running 15 minutes late. You can't clock in before you're at the location because it's going to say, hey, you're not actually there. You can't clock in. When she explained it like that, it, it made a lot of sense to me. I get that. I told her I'm unfamiliar with any nonprofits anywhere in the country that are using it. But she said there are nonprofits according to these two programs and others that they're looking at that are using it. But with all of that said, it made a lot more sense. And I had two major takeaways from this idea of tracking volunteers slash employees in this particular respect, in this particular instance. The first, I had it, you probably have it, friends in your particular circle probably are going to have this thought. Is this ethical? Is this ethical? Is that something that we should be doing? Another question that came to my mind related around the ethical aspects of it is this sounds like such a young person thing because if I was in AmeriCorps right now at my age of 35 and my boss said hey we want to use this thing called Roostify or Rostify which is also a very funny name to just ensure that people are where they 
say they are, I'd be kind of like, uh, I, I, I don't know about that. I'm not too cool with that. But in the aspect of young people, listen, if I'm 18 or 19 years old and I know I can get an extra two hours of work and really only be a three, I, I honestly, you know, listen, we've all done it. We've all done it. But then it also, it also had me thinking of the aspect because she was saying in this five and a half minute email or um, audio message about how the feds, listen, we know they can be tight. They, they, they will pinch and count every penny. They will go down to every number and percentage points because, listen, it's, it's the federal government. They give out a lot of money. 80% of all nonprofits get their money from the government. So I get it. They got to be very short and, and very cautious of the way they give out money. And when you're in AmeriCorps, a large percentage of the money that's doled out for your education stipend, for your monthly paycheck, is is predicated on the number of hours. So I get a lot of that. But tracking people, using GPS, it's another sign of the not the squashing of labor, but the fact that employers can be so so can be so willful as it relates to what their employers do that for them, it's cheaper to track their employers and volunteers, and in this case, AmeriCorps members, than it is to not track. So she's sitting there with her counterparts and her positions of power. Listen, no fault to her own. She's a great person. And listen, I get it. You go, you want to make sure that the people that are saying they're doing the work are doing the work. I get that. But for them, they're thinking, you know what? It'd be worth it for us to spend. Let's just assume it's just a low number. Let's assume it's a thousand dollars every three months to use this particular app for these thirty people. For them, they go. It's cheaper for us to track our employers or employees, our AmeriCorps members that are supposed to do good in the community, than it is for us to not track them. That's a wild sentiment. I need to think more about this because I have a lot of aspects to this. But then my second take, and then I'll go ahead and get out of here. We'll move to the next section, next segment. The second take I had was, it brings up a really deep question of, what do you owe your employer? A lot of people throughout the history of time will say, yes, we owe our employers our time because they, we are exchanging our time, our labor for money. And, and it's been all types of ways. We're exchanging our time for shells that we can use to buy fish. We're exchanging our time for straight hard cash. We're exchanging our time for other favors. We can exchange our times for all types of things. But generally, we all agree, okay, we're, we owe our employer our time, our effort to one degree or another. But beyond that, do we really our employers or location it's kind of it reminds me of like a terms and conditions where for a lot of folks it's not a big deal and i would imagine for these 18 to 24 year old americorps members that are part of our program they're used to locations they're used to sharing their locations with family friends uh, spouses significant others boyfriends girlfriends whatever the case may be so i, I told her i said look i, I think you're 
workforce is probably going to be fine with that, but it still goes to, do they owe you that? Eh, something to kind of think in mind. Something to kind of, to kind of know. So listen, I want to know, seriously, send me an email, hit me up on Instagram. Do you know of any nonprofits? Are you a nonprofit that's using Buddy Punch, Rostify, a location GPS backed type of app? I want to know because I think this is something that's this is something that's gonna we're gonna see more of, and I want to be a little bit ahead of the curve on this. One of the things that's happening to me more and more these days than ever before is I'm going to a lot of people's houses. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just because of the, the age range that I'm in, the part of my life journey that I'm in, but I'm going to a lot of people's houses. And it's super funny because it's for all kinds of reasons. People are having housewarmings, there's parties, there's celebrations. People just want to get together compared, of course, to the height of COVID-19. And one of the most interesting aspects of going to people's houses, if you're a book lover like me, if you're a nerd like some of us out there, some of you insiders, people have some really good book collections. <laughs> so, like some really good book collections. And people have a lot of everything, fictions and nonfictions. They're just some good collections that people have. And you know, I was at a friend's house a couple of weeks ago, and she has a great book collection. It's not super big. It's not like one of those private library styles, but she has such an impressive, amazing range of books that for, I think she probably has maybe, I don't know, 200 books or something like that. That's not a lot to me as someone that's only, I only own about 10 books. I don't have a lot of space for books, and I'm not one of those people that likes to hold on to books. That's why I utilize utilize libraries, but it is nice going to people's houses and seeing all these books and going, oh, I read that, or what's that, or tell me about this. It's always a lot of fun, and she had a very good collection from a great range, cooking, history, politics, poetry, philosophy. She had a great history collection, and I was like, this is some really good stuff. And I went over there because she has two kids and I have a son and they're all in the same age range. So I went over to her house. We were hanging out. She's studying to be a therapist. And so I said, you know what? I'm over here. It's the middle of summer. I have some time. How about I hang out with the kids? You go to a coffee shop, chill, relax, do some studying, you know, give her a break. She's got a lot going on. So she dipped out for about two and a half, three hours. I hung up with the kids. And it's not like they they didn't even want to hang out with me other than getting snacks and helping them build forts and things like that. So I was scrolling through her book collection. And you know how it is. You scroll through and you see this book and you see that book. And as I was scrolling through, you know how it is. You scroll through, one catches your eye, but you kind of like you're still scrolling. Then you go, wait, 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 what was that? And then you kind of you kind of go back a little bit. And you're looking at the bind, so you do you do that little tilt where you kind of tilt your head to the right because you're looking and reading the titles of the books because you might not see the cover if they're standing up. And one book caught my eye, and I said, that looks interesting. And the book is called Credible 
while we doubt accusers and protect abusers. You can stop right there. That's such a strong and powerful title. It, it captures the attention. So I, I had to immediately go back, reread and go, wow, that looks interesting. Scoop that book out of it, you know, slid it out, looked at the cover and said, yeah, this looks to be something that is right up my alley. And the, the, the author, I want to make sure I get credit here. The author is Deborah Turkenheimer. And I'll give you a little bit of the background of her here in a second. I'll read her little bio on the back of the book. And I pick up the book. Great design. Great font. Powerful. Strong, but not overwhelming. Premier color scheme. If you get a chance to look at the book. I got the hard. She had the hard copy, so I looked at it. I like a good hard copy. You know I love nonfiction. So I'm like, wow, it feels good. It's got a good weight to it. The design is nice. The color is nice. And the title is strong. It gives you a sense of what's going to occur. So I said, yeah, this looks really good. I got the kids. They're playing in the background. They don't, they don't care about me. So I'm like, you know what? Let me, let me see if I can read a little bit. Open it up. I ended up reading the first 15 pages in about 35 minutes. And I said, yeah, th 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 this book is good. I knew I wanted to ask her if I could borrow this book. And, and look, I I'm going to get straight to the point with this. The book is good. The book is good. And it's something that if this is the type of subject that you're comfortable reading, um, I, I would recommend this. And so look, the, the author, Deborah Turkenheimer, I'm going to read her a little background here. She is a professor at Northwestern Pritzkett School of Law. She earned her undergraduate degree from Harvard, her law degree from Yale. She served five years as an assistant district attorney in the New York County District Attorney's Office, where she specialized in domestic violence and child abuse cases. So, look, we know she's smart. She's bright, obviously has a great education, great background. And she worked in an area that is the epic center, epic center of so much of society. New York is an international city, obviously the largest city in the United States. A lot of money, a lot of power, a lot of people, a lot of women. And listen, big disclaimer here. Obviously, man in America, cis man in America. I have more privileges than some. I have less privileges than other. Black man in America. This book does not shy away from some serious topics. And this, these are the type of topics that there are a lot of people in the nonprofit space, in the government space, special interest groups, advocacy, advocacy groups that dedicate their lives to this. And so definitely got to hold space for those types of individuals. I know that I could talk about this subject, but I can't talk about it to the level that a lot of other individuals can because I haven't experienced sexual assault to the degree that a lot of women catcalling. There's just a lot of pressure that exist on women just in society in general. So want to fully acknowledge that. But when reading the book, I had some really good takeaways, learned a lot. And I think it's a book that you all would appreciate. Uh, she does an amazing job of detailing different agencies, nonprofit agencies, government agencies that work in this particular space. And like I said, she does an amazing job flat out of explaining and detailing why 
We don't believe women when they come forward with sexual assault allegations. It's really just that simple. And listen, the book is heavy. And I appreciate the fact that it's heavy. She she digs deep into a lot of the aspects of women experiencing sexual assault. And she doesn't shy away from it. One of the things she acknowledges in like the first, I think, like 10 pages, if I'm not mistaken, that men do have the ability and do experience sexual assault. But she keeps the focus where the focus needs to be based off percentages, just as we know. Women are sexually assaulted by men at a higher rate than any other demographic. It's it's not even close. So she keeps the focus there. So a lot of the stories can be hard to take in. She doesn't shy away from it. And she displays a full gamut of the subject that I honestly think is worth reading. And I want to read you a little bit of a passage here from her book in a little bit. Uh, here in about two, three minutes. I think a, a really good passage that explains what the book is all about. And there are two big aspects of the book that, uh, for me, that I really appreciate. The first is she does a really amazing job of explaining and detailing and, ex- and, and providing examples of the way that there is a hierarchy in society for power and how that power will translates or translates into so many aspects of sexual assault where, no surprise, right? If you have power, if you have money, if you have influence as a man in America, how you can use that to discredit women, to disregard women, and how we as a society does that. So she does a great job of explaining that power directly and indirectly. But she also does a a really amazing job in the book of explaining what she calls this thing called the credibility complex. And I don't know, listen, I'll be honest, I don't know if she came up with the credibility complex. I think she does, if I remember right. I tried to go through it to find it, or if this is like an idea that social scientists and advocacy groups have used as a title or as 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 a name if they've named it the credibility complex, but she really takes it to a great level of explaining it. And it's no, it's nothing surprising to what, you all would probably believe, where in society, we tend to provide credibility to certain individuals based off of looks, power, money, gender, sexual orientation, and all the above. We see that in everything, labor, real estate, purchasing power, ownership, where if you are a white, powerful man, she uses Harvey Weinstein as an example, you have a lot of power. Jeffrey Epstein, as an example, you have a lot of power. If you are a man, white or black, R. Kelly, Bill Cosby, you may not have as much power as the white person, the white man, but you have power. She explains how if you are in particular jobs, she she just breaks it down to, to to, to all the denominators. If you are a white woman, you are more likely to believe compared to if you are a Latino or Asian descent, if you are of African-American or black descent, we know how society works, especially in America with race. So you get the the gist of it. And she does a great job of explaining that credibility complex. And so I want to read a a quick little uh, passage. This is actually in page seven of the introduction. And one of the things I also really appreciate about this book, this book is a solid 240 pages 
she does not waste a, a minute. She does not waste a, 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 a sentence, a paragraph. She does not waste a word. She really d- dives deep because I think she could have had this book be 300 pages, 500 pages. She could have added a lot of extra fluff. She gets straight to it. I appreciate that. She's obviously a lawyer, Harvard, Yale. So she gets straight to it. The The book has a solid seven chapters. And then additionally, she has an author's note, an introduction. She has a conclusion, an acknowledgement, and she has a notes section, which add, I think, about an extra 25 pages, 20 pages. So it's not even a whole lot. Some of the chapters are, uh, for example, quote, whose truth how Victims Are Distrusted, that's chapter three. She has chapter seven, Beyond Belief, When Survivors Matter. And she has a chapter, chapter five, called The Care Gap, How Victims Are Disregarded. So she she doesn't waste a lot of time. She gets right to the point. She uses some great historical examples, modern day examples, stats, facts, stories, quotes. She gives you the whole gamut if you're a nonfiction uh, reader who likes or would enjoy a topic like this. And so in chapter seven, in the introduction, she explains what the book's about. And she explains it in a way, I like to call it like the seatbelt effect. If you've ever had a chance to, to get on a roller coaster, you know, you're getting ready to go for a ride metaphorically or, uh, not metaphor, you know, metaphorically or literally, where you put that seatbelt on and that's kind of like that transition. She has this moment, and I think in this particular paragraph, where I put that, I read this paragraph and it was like putting a seatbelt on where I went, oh, okay, I know what this book's really going to be about and I'm ready to to continue with this. And so she says in chapter, uh, in the introduction, page seven, and I quote, when women do come forward, the credibility complex leads us to readily dismiss them to disbelieve their versions of events, to fault them for their violation, to disregard their suffering. All the while, the credibility complex causes us to elevate the interests of men accused, to embrace their denials, to absolve them of blame, to prioritize their desire to avoid accountability. Most of us fall prey to these tendencies, not because we're bad people or because we want to stack the deck against survivors, but because we remain steeped in this culture that has always discredited victims of sexual assault and harassment. What more do you need to say than that, right? What more do you need to say? The book is good. Check it out. I'm going to put uh a link to at least her website in the book in the show notes you can kind of see some a little bit maybe if you have google books you can kind of read a little bit of a excerpt again the book's only 240 pages she does not waste any time she gets straight to it i think it's a book many of you all would appreciate because she talks about some really heavy hitting subjects sexual assault sexual workplace harassment discrimination uh, rape the ideas of stranger danger, the ways that uh, we have this idea of the big bad person coming out of the alley to take advantage and rape women when it, it's so much more than that. And I think a lot of people that are in that particular space, we, a lot of people, we know these types of things, uh, but she does an amazing job of using, like I said, history, stories, quotes, um, examples, just 
that really hit home. So it's a book I definitely would recommend. I think it's worth checking out.